Lord God, we just, we just come before you, Lord. We ask that you would open your word to us, Lord God. We believe that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, if we're not changed by your word, it's not because of your word. It's because of us, Lord God. And we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears. Help us to to see what you want us to see and hear what you want us to hear. Lord God, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit in this place. Holy Spirit, that you would would speak your word today to the hearts of people. That you would speak through me. That that it wouldn't be my opinions and my my thoughts, Lord God. But it, it would be your heart to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to talk about love. What is love? I mean, it's, love is defined in many different ways, and there's many different ideas of what love is. And I just want to start off this message by defining love in a way that I think we probably don't necessarily think of it. Because what we do is, is we think of love in, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it an unregenerate state. All of us come into this world, right, as we've seen in Romans, and Mike talked about it three weeks ago, regeneration, that place where we're born again. And so we experience and we talk about love in a way that we've experienced it up to the point of regeneration, up to the point of when we come to know God, up to the point of when God transforms our life, transforms our heart, and makes us his child, right? And that's really what, how we gauge what love is. And then on top of that, throw in the noise of the world. And the world loves to define love. I mean, you, you get a definition of love every time you turn on the TV, every time you watch a movie, every time you listen to the radio. You get a definition of love every time you go to work and someone's talking about the, the love interest or, or their issues with their husband or even their children or even their family. And the idea, the definition of love that we really most understand is the idea of just common love that comes through common grace. See, God gives the world love because he is love. Okay, so what, what is love? Love is God. Listen, love is not in a, an emotion, it's not an affection, it's not a feeling. It is an action, but it's an action that's birthed out of God. And the only way you can truly understand and know love is, First John tells us, to be born of God. So outside being born of God, you do not and you will not and you cannot understand what true love is. Corinthians tells us, the life of the Spirit is foolishness to the natural man. Outside of regeneration, outside of being born again, you cannot know love because you do not know God. See, in the, in the picture of love that we get in the Bible is a Trinitarian love. See, that's why we're Trinitarian. That's why we believe God is one God, but God is three persons. Outside of three persons, there is no love. If God was just one God, the God of Islam, 
There, there's no love in that God because he's an individual alone and by himself. And everything that we experience in earth, on earth, in our lives is derivative of God. So what we have to know in, in, a, in an apologetic sense is that God is more than just one God. He is one God in three persons. And when we understand the concept of the Trinity, we're going to start to understand what love is. See, we, we've, looked at, we've looked at Romans, and Romans is a tough book because if you're really listening to Romans, if you're really listening to what Mike and my brother and some of these guys have preached, you've probably said to yourself, how do I know if I'm really one of these Christians? I mean, the, the way Romans sets it up in 1 and 2 is essentially you are lost in your trespasses and sins. There's none that do good. None seek after God. Your mouths are an open grave. And Paul goes down to, to demonstrate how God has saved people by his sovereign hand, right? And I mean, if anyone listened to the messages on Romans 9, you, see, you come away from that and you start to say, wow, if this is true, how do, how do I even know? How can I be sure that I'm even a child of God. And see, as we move into Romans 12, this is what Paul is doing right here. This is what Paul is doing in this verse, is he's setting up a definition of love that gives you and I a way of knowing and having assurance of, of our faith and our position in God. So let's look, let's look at it one more time because I want, I want it to explain something about how this is constructed in the verse. And then I want to go on to, to pull apart the verse. So if you look at Romans 12, verse 9, it says, Love must be sincere. Or some, some uh, translations will say, Love must be without hypocrisy. And in the, in the actual original text of this, it's almost like there's a phrase, it's a definite article, it's the word love, agape, we've all heard that, and it's the word hypocrisy with an A in front of it, which means it's negating that idea. So it's saying definite article, love, must be without hypocrisy, and then it, there's, there's almost like this definitional um, term. So what the writer is doing with that definite article is he's saying, I'm going to define for you right now what love is. That's what, that's what this verse 9 is saying. It's Paul saying, here is love. Love must be without hypocrisy, and I'm going to define what that means. Because to Paul, this is so important that if you don't understand what love is and how to express love, you can't know if you're a Christian or not. Because of what I said before, listen, because the expression of love in your life is having God in your life. See, we're getting beyond just being a human being at this point, and we're talking about being a child of God. Human beings love, right? We love our children, we love our families, we love our spouses, we love sports. We love our jobs, we love our hobbies, 
We love what we do. But essentially, outside of God, listen, outside of God, every expression of love that comes out of us is an expression of self-love. Anyone watch Friends here? Am I dating myself? But there was, there was actually a Friends episode where Joey was a telemarketer for raising money and Phoebe was making the point that there's no, there's no charitable act that is selfless. I mean, even the world sees this. Outside of God, there's no love that's selfless. So when, when Paul lays out the gospel and he lays out election and he lays out predestination, he's doing something very important when he turns the page in chapter 12 and he starts to say, now we're going to start to interact with each other. And the way we interact with each other is now love. Why is it love? Because we're born of God. And First John says everyone that's born of God has the spirit of God and has love. Why do we have love? Because we're born of God and we have the spirit of God. And the spirit is that expression of love. See, the, the picture that the Bible lays out of the Trinity, it's, it's, so, it's so complex and it's so interesting because one place we get a picture of eternity. Listen, God is an eternal God. This redemption is an eternal redemption. And God actually gives us a picture of eternity in Ephesians. And in Ephesians, what's, what's happening in Ephesians is he's saying, I've elected you, I've predestined you in love before the foundation of the world. Think of that for a second. You're getting a, a picture in scripture of the eternal relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the one picture that we have of eternity is a picture of love. It's the picture that Paul in Ephesians is laying out of what love is. And he's saying, in this picture, in the eternal counsel of God, when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in communion before creation, what is going on is the concept of love. The Father has a plan. The Father wants to do something. And he's giving that plan to the Son, and that plan is the redemption of mankind that they're going to create. And that Son, in love, is taking on the purpose of the Father. Listen, it's completely and utterly selfless. The Father has a plan to love the Son, and the plan to love the Son is to create mankind, is to decree the fall, and to redeem people. And the love of the Son is to step down in humility, to take on the form of the creation, and to die a brutal and horrible death to glorify his Father. Selflessness, selflessness. And the flow, the flow of the love between the Father and the Son is literally the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the expression of the love of the Father to the Son, the reflection of the love of the Son to the Father is going to take that plan of redemption 
all of what God is in love is the plan of redemption that Christ will accomplish and the Holy Spirit will then apply to us. Think of that for a second. This, this, is, this is the crux of the Bible. When we look into eternity, this is what God shows us. The plan of redemption between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's an expression of his love. And so when Paul comes here and he says, love must be sincere, love must be without hypocrisy, he's expressing the concept that now that you understand who you are in Jesus, you've received the Holy Spirit, which is love, and now you're to express who the Holy Spirit is without hypocrisy. And that expression is just like in eternity, that expression was for our redemption. So we model, we model that selfless redemption of mankind in how we love each other. So just as, as Jesus selflessly loved the Father by accomplishing his plan, and the Holy Spirit applies it to our lives, we selfish or selflessly love one another in that same way. It's a totally different kind of love. It's, it's what theologians throughout the, the centuries have called disinterested love. See, it's a love that, that isn't determined by what someone is doing for us. It's not a response because, oh, someone did something good for me, so now I will love them. It is a completely and utterly distant, disinterested love that is completely selfless. That was the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus for the Father was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take on to accomplish your plan of redemption because I want to see you glorified. And the love of the Father was, I have this plan of redemption because I want to glorify my Son. It's completely and utterly selfless. And it's a model that now we take in the church for each other, right? Because what are we? We're the bride of Christ, and we are a picture of that redemption in our marriages. We're a picture of that redemption in the church. We're a picture of redemption, and that redemption is utterly selfless, disinterested love. So what is, what is true love? True love ultimately has to be disinterested, or else it's not really love. Think of it for a second. It's idolatry, Right? I want you to think even about your children or your spouse or who, your family. There's a sense, listen, listen, think of it for a second with me. There's a sense of idolatry in that love, is there not? Think of it. My soapbox. I don't want to get on a soapbox, but I, I want to illustrate it here. What I think the biggest detriment to family to god to the church today is high school sports and i don't say that jokingly i say that with complete and utter seriousness see you you look at you look at the the time of the puritans 1600s 1700s you know how people raise their kids they raise their kids to know latin and know greek and know hebrew know why at age 9 10 11 these kids were studying latin greek hebrew they were studying the creeds The most important thing to them was God. And everything they did with their children was to raise them in a way where they would die for God. 
That was, that was their thought process. I'm going to raise my child to die for God. And know what our thought process in America is today? I'm going to raise my child to be the athlete that I couldn't be. And our complete and total identity is caught up in what our children, as parents, a lot of times, what our children doing doing school and doing high school sports. I mean, I look at it, I watch it. Trust me, I'm a high school athlete and a college athlete, so I'm not just an anti-athlete. But what I'm saying is it's the biggest deception of the devil because it is 110% self-love. And we want to gain something through our children being something that has nothing to do with God. And frankly, frankly, when, they get, when they're 22, it doesn't matter. It's over. No one cares. None of you here know what I did in high school. But it's true. But yet, yet my, my life or the lives of these children is completely and utterly formed around travel teams, sports teams, money spent on that, and it has nothing to do with God. See how, but we love our children. But it's an idol. it can be an idolatrous self-love, right? That, and I'm just using that as an illustration to say, even the best things in our lives, if we don't understand love, can turn into an idolatrous love. And what Paul's saying here is, it's that hypocrisy that Paul's talking about. He's saying, love has to be without hypocrisy. So how do we make our love without hypocrisy? And I say this to you today so that you can, you can, you can leave here today and you can begin to look at how you love and determine on how God is changing your heart. And in actuality, what you should be able to say is what Peter is talking about. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You should be able to go home and start to analyze, how do I act? How do I love? Do I really have God in me? Because here's the thing. If you can love disinterestedly, if you can love without self-love, if you can love with the Spirit of God, that means you are a child of God. And I believe that what some of us struggle with the most is not knowing whether we really are saved or not. And I'm telling you this morning, you can know whether you're saved. The Bible tells us you can know with assurance that you are a child of God. And one of the ways you can do that is by looking at your love, looking at your love. Looking at how you live your life in your family, with your friends, and with your enemies. Because without the Spirit of God, listen, without the Spirit of God, you cannot express disinterested non-self-love. Because it is the Spirit of God. So what does that look like? It's a different form of love. See, disinterested Spirit-filled love is a love of is a love that looks first to Christ. It's a love that is expressed to Christ first and then to others. See, when you look at that Trinitarian love, you see it's an expression to God the Father from Jesus first, and what it does is it affects us big time. See, that it Redemption is secondary to Jesus. Justification and glorification of the Father is primary. It's not, it's, not that, it's not that one isn't 
part of it, but it's that one is primary and one is secondary. One is the groundwork. One is the bedrock. The other is an outworking and a result of it. So when, when Jesus, because the Father has chosen to forgive, goes to the cross to first justify and glorify the Father, he does that by gaining us redemption. It's not that he didn't love us. It's that his love is a, towards us is a secondary love. It's an outgrowth of his love to the Father. And in the same way, as we have a disinterested love towards God, as we're looking to God, as we're looking to serve God, as we're looking to love God, it results in a love towards others and other things that doesn't make that love idolatrous. How can I illustrate that? See, the Word of Faith movement is the biggest uh, movement of idolatrous love. So it's probably the best way to illustrate it. Because what these guys will say is these guys will say, see, God, God wants you to have. God wants you to gain. God wants you to be successful. God wants you to drive a nice car. God wants you to have a lot of money. God wants you to do all these things. And if you don't have these things, you really, you know, you don't have the faith. You're not showing your faith towards God. And see, for them in that movement, it's all about things. It's all about possessions. It's all about money. It's all about power. It's all about prestige. It's all about who you are. And that is the main thing. And God is a means to get that. And what I'm talking about is the exact opposite. I'm saying God is the main thing. God is the fountain of all joy. God is the fountain of all peace. God is the fountain of all hope. God is the fountain of all love. God is the, the fountain of everything we could ever want in this world. And as, as we see that, the things that we have, we love them in response to him. We love them in a way that glorifies him. This love, this non hypocritical love that that Paul is talking about here. Let love be without hypocrisy. Well, how do I do that in Paul's mind? I love God. See, that's why Paul could say, I understand what it, I'm content. I'm content whether I have much gain. I'm content whether I'm poor. I'm content whether I'm highly esteemed. I'm content whether they're stoning me outside the town. I'm content whether I'm in a shipwreck. You know why? Because it, the things didn't matter. The things were a means by which he loved God. That's why Paul could say, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. See, that's the, 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 the final and the pinnacle of the expression of disinterested love is to say to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Let me, let me, quick illustration. I remember when I was a kid. I, I was a young boy. One set of grandparents lived in Florida, and the other set of grandparents lived in Virginia. And I can remember when we were getting ready to do the trip, and we'd know that we we're going to go on a trip to see Nani and Poppy. You're just so excited. You just want to get there. The drive doesn't even matter. Talk about the way we used to drive back then. My dad had a pickup truck with a cap, a cap on the back, and he used to put mattresses in the back of a pickup truck. And me and my brother would drive to Florida as little kids in the... I mean, think of that for a second. 
But we were so excited to get there. And then we would get there, and it was the best thing ever. And I can remember leaving, and it was the worst thing ever. And honestly, I think today I have this weird, like, this weird, um, it's almost like a reaction. When, when vacations end, I have this, like, pit in my stomach, and it's just like this tearing apart, and it's like, oh, it's over. And I really think it's a result of every vacation. When I was a little kid, it was literally, I would be crying in the car for like four hours because we're leaving Nani and Poppy. Contrast that with a trip to the dentist's office. Do you have that kind of excitement? No. I have no interest in going to the dentist. I'll cancel it four times before I even actually go and... To be honest, you don't want to go. But let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you, on your viewpoint of death, do you relate to the dentist office or the nani and poppy? When you think about death, when you think about dying, is it something that's an excitement for you? Because you're going to go to be with the one that matters the most to you in perfect relationship? Or is it a terror? And if you had the choice, you'd probably cancel it. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? I mean, I think there's more to it than that simple illustration. You know, there's the unknown. There's a, you know, there's a lot to it. But to Paul, do you think Paul meant to, to live as Christ but to die as an actual gain because now I get to stand face to face with Christ? See, Paul had a non, he had a love that had no hypocrisy. There was no hypocrisy in his love. He loved the world he loved his friends. He cried when he left them, and he knew he wouldn't see them again. He loved, loved the people he ministered to. But if he had the choice, he loved Jesus more. And that's really where the rubber hits the road, is it not? I mean, I don't, I, trust me, I don't sit up here saying I can say that like Paul. But I say it to say this is something we should be striving for. It's funny, I, I read a book, there, there's a guy in the 1600s, his name was Cotton Mather, and he wrote a book to train ministers to be minister, ministers and to preach. And the first section of the book was, if you're going to be a minister of the gospel and preach the word, you need to understand and embrace that your life is a walk towards death. So that's it. Your life is a walk towards death because a walk towards death is a walk towards intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And you need to be preaching and telling people that their life is a, is a walk towards death because their primary love has to be Jesus Christ. And if you can understand that, if you can embrace that in some way, if you can work towards that, then you, can, you will truly love other people. Because all of a sudden, all these 
little petty things that, that interrupt relationships, when you understand that your life is a walk towards death, listen, we'll, we'll, we, at the best, some of us got, what, 90 years if we're lucky? That, like, that, I'm, now I'm just, because, hey, I'm with you. I don't want to die tomorrow. I got two little kids and one on the way. So, but, talk to anyone with a lot of gray hair in this room, and it goes fast. Right? It goes fast. And when you realize the speed of life and the sacrifice of Christ, do I really care that this person said something about me that I didn't really, you know, do I, these, these little petty things, I can truly love because I understand that it's not about these things. It's not about that. It's being devoted to one another. Listen, why can I be devoted to one another? Why can I honor others above myself? Why can I never lack in zeal? Because I realize I have a limited time right here, right now. And this is my travel. This is my travel. This is, this is my pilgrimage to being with Christ. And if I believe that, I'm going to live out right now what I'm, I'm going to experience in heaven forever. I'm going to live out right now that love that I'm going to experience with Jesus forever. And so when, when we get to heaven, just like I talked about, this, this Trinitarian idea of eternity, that's the expression of love in heaven. When I get to heaven, it's, I'm going to actually experience and firsthand knowledge of the love between the Father and the Son and the reflection of the love from the Father to the Son in the expression in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be right there in front of me. I'm going to walk into a a place where God dwells and I'm going to look into the face of Jesus and I'm going to actually see the true expression of love. And I'm going to know what real love is. Everything that we're trying to work out in our life right now, we're going to experience that firsthand. But we don't have to wait till we get there. That's what Paul's saying here. That's why he's saying, now that you've been transformed, see, it's no longer, it's no longer you trying to work something up inside yourself or to do something. Because what's happened to you, what's going on in Romans here, is he's expressing to you that this isn't something, this is why this is important. Listen, I, I got five more minutes, so I'm going to try to lay this out. Mike said to me the other day, we were in the car, and he was going to preach on regeneration. And in only Mike's way, he took money, and he slammed it on the, on the dash, and he said, what's it matter? And he, I, he wasn't questioning, he just wanted to know what I thought. What's it matter? What's it matter if God saves me, or if I somehow cooperate with God? Here's how it matters. If you cooperate with God, he's no longer your savior. If if Jesus did something 2,000 years ago, and he is just standing there saying, come on, apply it to your life. He's not saving you. He's impotent. He's weak. He's nothing in that scenario. If he's standing there, and he's saying, come to me, save yourself. Apply what I did for you. Come on, I can't do it. I can't get you there. you got to go that. Even if it's a tenth of a tenth of a tenth percent that you have to do on your own, he is not your savior. You are your own savior. If a guy falls off a, falls off a, a pier and he gets on a ladder that someone put there a hundred years ago, 
the person that put the ladder there is not that man's savior. He saved himself. And in the same way, if Jesus is some impotent God that can't do anything, first of all, he's not your savior. Second of all, he's not God. A non-sovereign God is, is, a, is a contradiction. He is not a God in that scenario, and he does not save you. And therefore, he is not your Lord, and therefore, you do not have to do what he says, ultimately. The logic is, I, you just can't get away from the logic. Therefore, you don't really need to love, because it's all just a fiction. J.I. Packer says it best. He says, it's a partial gospel at best, and a partial gospel is not the gospel. See, the gospel is that he came, and he didn't just, he didn't just make a way for you to be saved. He actually saved you. And when he saved you, what happened is you were born again, and he transformed. If you go, this is Romans 6 and 7. If he, he, he releases you, he changes you, he regenerates you, and now you're a different person. So before he did that, you couldn't love. But now that he did that, you can love. It's not that he saved you and now you have to learn how to love. It's that he saved you and he implanted in you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is love. So if he has changed you, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can do this now. You can live a life of love that is without hypocrisy. Before it happened, the Bible is so clear. You wouldn't love God. You won't love God. It's, it's not any determinative thing that's happened to you. It's your own will saying, I don't love God. I won't love God. I love myself. I love the things of this world more. And when God comes in and he releases your will, you freely choose him. And you freely love because he's changed you. Now you're different. So it's not something, it's not legalism. I don't have to set up a bunch of rules because now as Ezekiel and Jeremiah talk, he's given me a new heart. He's taken my heart of stone. He's given me a heart of flesh. See, now I don't need to set up the rules because now this is who I am. I want to obey God because God now is the most important thing to me. And it's not antinomianism. It's not this sense of, it, this nonsense that now that Jesus saved me, I can leave, live any way I want to live. I mean, that that's just doesn't even make sense. From eternity, he's hated sin. For he sent his son to die on a cross for our sin. So now he saves you so you can sin? I mean, who, who made up this nonsense? It's stupid. It doesn't even make sense. He didn't save me so I could sin. He saved me from sin. Why would I sin? Not that I won't sin, but I don't want to sin. And the idea that, that somehow the law of God has now moved aside and I live in this grace where I can do anything I want to, it doesn't make any sense. Biblically, I'm a new person and now I love and I love and I love because not because I'm somehow figuring out how to love or working up some love, but because I have the Spirit of God implanted in me, and the Spirit of God is love. And he flows out of me, and he expresses a love first to God that's reflected in other people. So I took my...
message and I didn't get through my application, but. All right, I'll give you one point of application if I can just go a little bit longer. There's no one left in the long hair. <laughs> okay, I, we, we just talked about all this. So you have to, you have to do something with this. It, the, the most important thing that I can think that you could leave here and do with it is when, when Jesus talks about love, he talks about loving God with our mind, our spirit, our soul, everything in us. See, and, and here's how we work. Here's how we work. Everything goes in through our mind. And it is expressed through our heart. Sorry, guys. There's no other way to do it. Your mind first. You can't be affectionate and, and respond to something you don't understand. And here's the problem with, with modern-day Christianity is everyone wants to read the most ridiculous books that are out there. And all the books are is a bunch of stories. And it has nothing to do with this. This is the only story. This, it, not, not that you can't read books like that, but this is the only story. This is the story. If you don't know this story, I, I don't care about Stephen Furtick's story, Craig Gershell's story, everyone else's story that they want to tell about the story, the story, the story. Pick up the book. Trust me, I've read them. And it's like, man, if I hear one more story, I don't care about your story. I want to know his story. Because you can't live this life unless you understand it. It comes in through your mind and it goes out your heart. So how do you get it into your mind? The preaching of the word, right? The sacraments, confession of faith, confession of our sin. Everything that we do here on a Sunday is the primary means. The preaching of the word is the primary means by which you get this in your mind and you can express it out your heart. And get a good book. Like Mike, Mike knows books. Ethan knows, knows books. My brother knows books. I know books. Get a good book. Read a good book and get it in your mind so that you can express it out of your heart. Amen? I'm going to pray. Lord God, I just, I just pray right now, Jesus, that you would just send your Holy Spirit and take these words, strip, strip out of it, Strip out of it my own opinions, Lord, my own thoughts, Lord God. And, and let, let the actual word of God be applied to the hearts and to the minds of people today, Lord God. I pray, pray that you would apply it to our hearts and to our minds in such a way that we walk out of here and we do something different, Lord God. That, that we understand love a little bit more. That we understand how to walk in relationship to you a little bit more, that we understand who you are, what you are, and how you've changed our lives just a little bit more, Lord God. I pray that you would, you would apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.